Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. Praise God. We're talking about the greatest love of all. This is lesson number two. Our foundational scriptures were found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, and then John 3, 16. And in those verses in Ephesians, we see Paul prayed a specific prayer for the church at Ephesus. And he prayed that they would have an in-depth understanding of the love of God. And he revealed to us that this love has breath, it has length, it has depth, and it has height. And the objective is this, when you understand that, then you can be filled with all the fullness of God. But the problem is, he also said, you can't understand it. This is a love that passes knowledge. It goes beyond our understanding. It's too great to understand, and it's too beyond us to even comprehend. It's like incomprehensible. Well, then why does he tell us that we should understand it? Because you're not going to understand it intellectually is what he's saying. You're going to have to understand it spiritually. You have to engage your heart in this because it's the only way you can know it. It's the only way you can understand it. God has to open up our hearts to give us an understanding and a revelation within our being that God could love us so much that he did what he did for us. And that goes beyond our understanding. Now, if you understand it, you'll be filled with the fullness of God. So our Aim should be what? What's our end goal? That we all are filled with the fullness of God. That we emulate the life of Christ. As Paul said, I live, but no longer I. Christ lives in me. Christ living in us, manifesting his presence, his power through our lives, his love, his mercy, his grace, and the list goes on and on of all the characteristics of, in Christ that God wants manifested in us and through us. And it's all based on love. Why? Because God is love. That's the reason why. We also said that a person's value is not measured in silver and gold. As a matter of fact, something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. Do you ever, when I was a, a little bit younger with my younger ones, and they were looking up these cards, these, whether it's trading cards, baseball, football, and all that, I marveled when I saw the price of some of those cards. I mean, we're talking about some around a million dollars, two million dollars for a little baseball card. I was so upset, my, mom, my mother threw them all away. <laughs> of course, there's a catch to it that if you get one, you don't wrinkle it. Either laminate it or do whatever you can, get it autographed, get it signed and all that. But the thing is, you find out that these cards are worth a lot of money. But in actuality, if I found a card and it was worth a million dollars... I wasn't going to pay that because it's not to me worth a million dollars. Would you pay a million dollars for a trading card? No. No. So you see, it's only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. Now, if someone's willing to pay that money for it, great. What is your worth? It's not measured in silver. 
It's not measured in gold. Your worth is measured in the blood of Jesus. This whole world with all that's in it, all the wealth and the resources that's in it, could never buy one person's ransom. But you've been saved, bought and paid for. You personally belong to God because Jesus paid the price, the ransom price of his blood for you. So we talked about the breadth of God's love in our lesson last week. The breadth of God's love basically is the whole world. It's globally manifested. No matter how vile a person might be, no matter how awful a person might be, no matter how good a person might be, God loves the whole entire world. Every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation, God loves each and every one equally. That's the breath of God's love. In John 3, 16, that He gave His only begotten Son. That's the incarnation. The hypostatic union of deity and humanity. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you understand that? Can you understand that a God who cannot in any way be housed in any house that man could create for Him, no matter how big it is, can't do it? He made the universe and everything that's in it. The whole universe can't even house Him. But yet, in an act of incarnation, a hypostatic union took place where deity, Christ, humanity, Jesus, got together and the God-man was alive. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, you find out that he says this, when he came into the world, he said, burn offering and sacrifice you would not, but a body you prepared for me. Christ is not a body. He's the second person of deity. The body represents his humanity that he entered into this earth by the legal channel of birth so he could redeem man from his fallen state. That he can house the blood, the only blood that can deliver a sin-sick soul. So, thank God that he was willing to love us so much that he who created all things, because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was created, everything he created, everything in the world, by him was everything made that was made, and the Word became flesh and walked on his creation. Think that through. Can you? Can you figure that out? That's what it took to bring him to the earth so that you and I could be redeemed. And he loved us so much, he was willing to leave that glorious estate to enter the womb of a woman, to put on flesh for the purpose of suffering and dying. That's your value, that's your worth. You don't ask your neighbor what your value or your worth is. You don't ask your employer what your value or your worth is. Don't even ask your family members. Your value and your worth in the eyes of God Almighty was worth Him getting off the throne, entering into a womb, robing Himself in flesh, and doing what was necessary to buy you back. It's a good time to shout right there. Wow. Oh, now you're ready for this? We also concluded by saying this. Now that I know my worth, and now that I know my value, how much I mean to God, know what he said? Now look at everybody around you 
and love them as I have loved you. What a mandate. He raised the bar when it comes to walking in love. You see, in the Old Testament, he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, he raised that bar when he said, now the new commandment I give to you, that you love God, yes, but that you love one another as I have loved you. You're not going to love someone if you don't see their value and their worth. I know it gets under your skin when you see people on TV and the news and that sort of thing and someone killed this one or someone raped that one and whatever and you got this righteous indignation and you want them to be punished for what they've done and all that and rightfully so they should be. But then you sit back and you go, God loved that person just as much as he loves me. God wants that person saved as much as he wants me saved. So we should do our part to do what? Communicate the love of God to people to let them know their value and their worth and how important they are to the kingdom of God, to the royal family of God, that God paid a massive price so that we can have a relationship with him that's right. God wants us to understand that it's the breadth of his love that encompasses the whole world and the length of his love was he was willing to go to that length to leave the glory world and robe himself in flesh. Now the third is this, the depth of God's love. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, he knew we would respond to his love, at least some would respond to his love, if he just loved us all the way through from the beginning to the end. When he would exhaust his love in every possible and imaginable way from beginning to end. So the third step is, the depth of God's love, John 15, 13. This is Jesus speaking, and this is from the Passion Translation, I believe, of the Bible. Look at what it says. For the greatest love of all is not learning to love yourself. I, I think that Whitney Houston has a great voice, had a great voice. She didn't write the song, but she sang the song. But the song talks about how the greatest love is to learn to love yourself. And it's important to love yourself, but it's not the greatest love of all. It's a love that sacrifices all. And this great love is demonstrated when a person sacrifices his life for his friends. Not his money, not his goods, but his life for his friends. So we see here that Jesus makes it very clear that he's willing to go to the depths to demonstrate the love that God has for humanity. Because remember, he said, look, what I'm doing, the Father has instructed me to do. I'm acting in his place. I am here representing him, and I'm going to love you to the depths of it all. And if you recall, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was crying as if it were. He was sweating, rather, as if it were blood out of his pores because he understands what the depth of love would have to do. And you might think, well, yes, he was going to be, you know, he's going to be whipped. He's going to have the cat of nine tails. He's going to have 39 stripes on his back. And no wonder he's crying out. No, no, no. It had nothing to do with it whatsoever. How do I know? Because Paul had that done five times and he wasn't sweating blood. Five times. Three times beaten with rods and he wasn't sweating blood. No, the distinct difference is this. Jesus knew he would be made sin for us. He knew what that would entail. We don't, but he knew exactly what that would entail. And so he knew, oh my goodness, Father, if there's a way to do this, another way to do this, then let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done. Your will be done. And so what does he do? 
He submits himself and surrenders himself to the will of the Father and says, yes, I'm willing to go through with it all. And that means I'm willing to go to the depths of God's love to redeem man from his fallen state. Wow. What does that mean? Sacrifice the entirety of his life. Look in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, which is the redemptive chapter. I'm going to point something out that's important here. Yet it pleased the Lord, Jehovah, to bruise him. Notice, not the Roman lictor, but the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. When you make his soul, everybody say soul. Soul, soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the righteous. You are awake. With the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The word soul, you notice in all three of those verses, soul, 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 is nephish. And that word nephish explains something to us. Look in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, and then we'll talk about it. And the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living nephish, a living soul. So if you can envision this, you see the body of Adam was created or made by God out of the dust of the earth, but it was lifeless, expressionless, couldn't communicate whatsoever. It's just a body. But then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living nephish or living soul. That word is talking about the essence of a person's being. It's talking about his inward being. His living being. And we see this clearly at a funeral. When the spirit and soul leave the body of an individual, it becomes lifeless motionless, speechless. It's there, but it's just the body that housed the living soul that was within. So you will notice when Isaiah said he made his soul an offering for sin, he poured out his soul unto death. It all involved the soul of Jesus, the inward part of, of, of a man, in this case, Jesus. And when God would see that sacrifice, then he could justify many. Look in the book of... Um, Acts chapter 2. This is talking about the inner man. This is talking about the essence of his being. This is talking about who a man really is. As a matter of fact, when Jesus left the glory world, remember Christ. If you've never heard this before, this is important. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus stands for humanity. Christ stands for deity. Hypostatic union of deity and humanity in no one else but one individual, Jesus Christ. So when Christ, let's say this, Christ left the glory world behind, he's a spirit being, right? He doesn't have a body, correct? Right. So what does he need a body? 
He needs a body to find expression in the earth. So Christ is not a body. Christ is a being. So Christ enters a body. Now he has expression into the earth. So it's more than just a physical. It's spiritual and soul. All right. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, and this once again is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. God raised him up, ending the comforts of death. Some of you are still sleeping. God raised him up, ending the, ending the, I like the way it says that, ending the what? What is raised him up referring to? The resurrection. When he was raised, then what did it end? The pains of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not leave me in Hades. Or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. Who's he speaking of? The resurrection of Jesus. He was not left in Hades. The King James says his soul was not left in Hades and his flesh. Notice his flesh. Notice the distinction between he and his flesh. You realize you, he or she, are not a body. He was not left in Hades. His flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. So the picture we have painted for us, the depth of God's love is in, you could say, his humanity. Jesus became sin for us, was made sin for us, was made to be sin for us as our substitute. And... In a place of suffering where he was raised up from out of, which is called Hades, or we say hell, God released him from the pains of death because it was impossible for him to be held there. Why? Because he was innocent. You and I were guilty, but somebody took our place. Somebody took the punishment for us. And God on the third day raised him from the dead and said, You are my son, and this day have I begotten thee. I can't even wrap my brain, and neither can you, around what that actually entails and what it really means. In Romans 10, 7, he was raised from the abyss. Who shall descend into the abyss to raise Christ up? So... If we could allow our brains to go there, number one, he loves everybody in the world. That in itself is amazing, isn't it? Number two, he was so willing to demonstrate his love that he left 
heaven to become part of his creation. Everything was made by him. There wasn't one thing made that was made that wasn't made by him. But now he, the creator, walks on his creation. Unfathomable. Beyond our comprehension. You see why you can't understand it? And then, on Calvary, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you define that? Wow. So he takes upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God that you and I should have bore, and he bore it. He carried it for all of us. Goodness. Can anybody say thank you, Jesus? What depth. Remember what Romans said? Maybe for a righteous man, someone would dare to die. But usually, typically, for someone who's not a good person, one wouldn't even think about dying for that person. But could be a, maybe a family member, a friend, or whatever, that you would possibly lay down your life for someone. And many do that, even in our armed forces, just to lay down their lives so, our, so we can have our freedom protected. But for someone who is evil, would you lay down your life like Christ did? But he did. He did that to demonstrate the very love of God. Now, the last phase of this is found in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and it's called the height of God's love. So now we've got, he loves the world. Now he wrote himself in flesh. Now he bore the sin penalty for all mankind. He became the curse. And now he's raised up from the dead, but not alone. You know, we think of the resurrection, we think of Christ being raised up from the dead, and we don't allow our minds once again to shift over to the fact that so are you. So was I. Really? Well, let's read it. This is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And you were dead. Did you know you were dead? In your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. That was our status. But God, who is rich. You see, if I stop right there, you might think he has a lot of money. Right? God, who is rich in mercy. In not giving people what they deserve. What's he rich in? Not giving people what they deserve. Aren't you glad? He's rich in not giving any of us what we deserve. Absolutely. He's rich in mercy. Why? Because of his great love wherewith he loved us. Or that he had for us. Made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the 
coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Have you got something to look forward to? Man, do I have something good to look forward to? Did you get all that? Now, can we comprehend this? Can we understand this? That when Christ was raised up from the dead in the resurrection, in the mind of God, any person and every person, whoever was, whoever is, whoever will be, was also raised up with him. Now, it's not going to be a reality until you accept him, but that's not the point. The point is when Christ was raised up from the dead, God saw every person raised up from that awful place with him, vindicated, set free, liberated, no longer to be bound by sin or the dominion of darkness. So when God raised him up, where does the love come in? Well, this is the completion of his love. He did all this to have a family. He did all this so that we could have a part in his family, royal family, to give birth to sons and daughters. The Bible says that Jesus looked beyond the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? The joy was Ben. The joy was Dave. Rose. And the list goes on and on. Every single one of us hear the joy that was set before him. Imagine when a child is born, even in this world, the parents are ecstatic with joy. It's a boy. It's a girl. And they're just going crazy over this. Oh, my goodness. And that changes them on the inside. Something happens when they see that new life come into the world that words could never communicate. What a thought. When my first one was ever born. Wow. Wow. And you know what? Everyone thereafter, same thing. You just can't even explain it. When God raised up Jesus from the dead, he saw many sons and daughters about to be birthed. You see, he came into his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth. God wanted a family. This whole plan of redemption revolves around that fact. You think about what's the reason for the universe. Answer, to love the earth. Everything out there in the created universe loves the earth. What's the reason for the earth? To love the man. God didn't make man, then make an earth. God made earth, then made a man. He made provision for the man before man was ever created. And everything in the earth by design of God is to do what? Love the man. Aren't you glad there are places on this earth where you can go and you can have sun and sunshine? Well, not, not Western Pennsylvania, but, you know, there's some place where you can really be loved that way. My point is the, the, the ground to produce fruit, the trees, the vegetable kingdom, etc., etc. Even the animal kingdom, your little puppy dogs, they love you. Don't they love you? They love, you know, I kind of, kind of wonder, God made them in such a way that when you leave to take the garbage out and come back in, they think you were gone for a month. <laughs> right? I, I was only outside just for a minute, honey. I, 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 it's good. But they just love on you. They just love you, love you, unconditionally. Love you, love you, love you, love you, right? That's, just love on you. 
So God made the universe to love the earth. He made the earth to love the man. He made man to love God. But guess what man did? He didn't love God. He broke the circle of love. He loved himself. And God says, Father, one hand on you, Jesus said, and one hand on man. I will stretch out my hands to bridge the gap between God and man. And I'm going to bring us together by the sacrifice of myself. Hallelujah. He loved the Father. He did what the first Adam didn't do. And as a result, he made it possible for this. Look at 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read it from two translations, the King James first, and then also the J.B. Phillips translation. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now, not tomorrow, now are we the sons of God. Now notice, and it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Did you get that? Now are we the sons of God. Let's read the other translation first before I comment. Consider this, the, the incredible love that the Father has shown us and allowing us to be called children of God. And that is not just what we are called, but what we are. Our heredity on the Godward side is no mere figure of speech, which explains why the world will no more recognize us than it recognized Christ. Oh, dear children of mine, forgive the affection of an old man. Have you realized it? Here and now we are God's children. We don't know what we shall become in the future. We only know that if reality were to break through, we would reflect his likeness for we should see him as he really is. This is the culmination of all things. You and I have no idea what it's going to be like in the future for us, but we know this, as he is, so are we in this world. And when we see him, praise God, we'll be like him. The expression, what manner of love, you know what that actually means? Where does this love come from? What country does this love come from? What planet does this love come from? Where has this love come from? You know what agape is? It's the, the Greek word for love, divine love, God's love. It came from another world. It didn't come from here. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus brought agape love into the realm of human experience. He brought a love that is based on feel, not based on just feelings and emotions, but on principle and decision. You see, phileo, brotherly love, Philadelphia kind of love is responsive. You love me because I love you. Or I, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Right? You give me a gift, I'll give you a gift. But you holler at me, I'll holler back, back at you. That is responsive love. But the love of God comes from another world. God can love humanity, even the vow of sinner, and say, I will die for her, I will die for him, no matter whether they're good, whether they're bad, indifferent, or whatever. I will die for the world. What love he bestowed upon us. And when he raised us up, praise God, it's exactly what he did. Now look at Romans chapter 8. We don't know what we're going to be in the glorified state. We have a glimpse of it possibly at the transfiguration. But are you ready for what he had, Paul had to say here? I'm convinced that any suffering we endure 
is less than nothing compared to the magnitude of glory that is about to be unveiled within us. The entire universe is standing on tiptoe. <clears throat> See, I'm not the only one standing on tiptoe when I get next to Ben. Did you hear that? It's standing on tiptoe. Why? Yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. You missed the time to say, wow. Wow. And say it backwards. <laughs> waiting to see me? Yeah. Waiting to see you? Yeah. Glorified. Glorified. What did John say? We know that we're now sons and daughters. We don't know what we're going to be like. We got a glimpse of it. But oh, wow. What's he saying? The whole universe, the whole creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God in full array of glory and splendor. Whew. Wow. Look at 1 John 4, 17. This is from the uh, Passion Translation as well. By living in God, love has been brought to its full expression in us so that we may fearlessly face the day of judgment because all that Jesus now is so are we in this world? Wow. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, 51 to 55. Once again, Passion Translation. Listen, I will tell you a divine mystery. Not all of us will die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in an instant, in the twinkling of his eye. For when the last trumpet is sounded, the dead will come back to life. We will be indestructible and we will be transformed. We will discard our mortal clothes and slip into a body that is imperishable. What is mortal now will be exchanged for immortality. Hallelujah. Aren't you longing for the day when you can walk through a wall? Aren't you longing for a day when you can eat and not gain weight? Oh, somebody better say amen to that one. Hallelujah. See, in that verse 3 of 1 John, chapter 3, he went on to say this. With the present, say, manifestation of God's love that we all have. An understanding of a future that we have in glory. We have now a present responsibility. And what is it? Everyone that has this hope in him will purify himself even as he is pure. Wait a minute. What? He will purify his neighbor? <coughs> purify his children? Purify his co-workers? He will, in other words, there's a motivation for me to say, Jesus, you did all that for me. I'm motivated to purify myself even as you are pure. Look, the way to get someone to come to Christ is not with guilt. Not putting them down. Not pointing out their flaws and mistakes and failures and shortcomings. But to introduce them to the love of God. And let them know how much God loves them. This last verse in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. Look at what it says. The Lord your God is in the midst of you, a mighty one, a Savior who saves. He will rejoice over you with joy. 
He will rest in silent satisfaction and in his love. He will be silent and make no mention of past sins or even recall them. He will exult over you with singing. Oh, my. I want to conclude it by saying this. God knew that loving us unconditionally would motivate many to respond to his great love for us. Accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Love him back and then be motivated to love other people the same way that he loved us. He knew that. Which is why he says they're going to know you're my disciple by the love that you had to one another and others that are out there in the world. And so what did he do? He exhausted his love. He poured out his love. If you can envision this and we'll just capsulize it. God loved us so much that he wouldn't stay there and leave us in our fallen state. He loved the whole world with the breath of his love. It's all encompassing. Every kindred tongue people of the nation. Nothing was, as far as he was concerned, too extravagant to do. So the length of his love is revealed that he would leave the the second person would leave, come to the earth and robe himself in flesh. And as he continues to pour himself out, he would then go to a cross where he would die and absolutely take upon himself the sin of the world and suffer the wrath of Almighty God that separated God from man and man from God. Then finally, he would rise on the third day and bring us all with him. Not just put us over here and just say, well, you just made it through, but to raise us up to sit with him in high heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What more can he do? Let's all stand together with appreciation and gratitude. And can we just, in our own way, just say, thank you, Father.